Well, good morning again. Good to see you all. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Lamentations chapter four. We're gonna continue our study, the book of Lamentations. If you're at home, we're glad you're joining us uh, for worship this morning. We trust that it will be a fruitful morning for you as well, as those of us gathered here. Uh, if you did not grab elements on your way in, we're gonna take communion as part of our worship together today. So at any point during the service, feel free to jump up and grab those. If you're at home and you wanna prepare elements so you can join us in taking communion, we would welcome you to do that. So as you turn to Lamentations chapter four, let's, uh, let's play a little bit of a game together. Super Bowl Sunday, we might as well play a game, yeah? All right, so let's have a little fun. So look at, look at the pictures on the screen. We're gonna play a game called One of These Things Is Not Like The Others. All right, can you see it? Yeah, we got one real dog and a bunch of stuffed ones. All right, good, so third from the right. All right, let's do the next one. Do you see the one that's not like the others? That would be an interesting bin to find in your local Walmart, right? All right, third one. Yeah, you see it now. I think it's amazing that a duck is standing on one leg. I didn't know ducks could do that but apparently they can if they're around a bunch of flamingos. And then the last one, I had to look at this one for a while. See, y'all saw it right away. I had to look at that for like three minutes to find that dog in the middle. Well, so, you know, that game is all about being able to identify what fits in the category and what doesn't, right? Yeah, so you're looking for the thing that doesn't fit in this scenario. And as we've been going through the book of Lamentations, we've seen these different parts of lament. So maybe you're just joining us for the first time. I'll, I'll catch you up a little bit here. We've been identifying that, that a true, like, biblical expression of grief, of lament, has a number of elements to it. And we've been arguing each week, like, let's add all the ingredients to our lament so that they're really full uh, and truly biblical. And one of those elements is complaint. And it's probably the one, if I had to guess, that we're, that we're least familiar with or at least least comfortable with. Uh, so as we think about that, it might be that we're not sure what fits in the category and what doesn't fit. We might play a little bit of like one of these things as not like the others and go, what things are worth complaining about? What things are appropriate to complain about as we take them to the Lord in limit? And what things are not? As we come to Lamentations chapter four, that's where we're gonna focus. Remember last week in Lamentations chapter three, we focus on what does it look like to express our trust to the Lord, uh, where we would say, in spite of really difficult circumstances, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. We saw the richness of that expression of trust in the midst of some really, really, really difficult circumstances. We come this week, kind of like we were in Lamentations chapter one, and we see that the focus of Lamentations chapter four is what does it look like to bring certain types of complaint to the Lord? And so that's where we're gonna spend our time together. I wanna give you three types of complaint that Lamentations chapter four teaches are worth bringing to the Lord when we go to him in lament. So look with me at the first 12 verses, and I said we're gonna do three. Here's the first one. The first one is bringing to the Lord how it is now versus how it used to be. How it is now versus how it used to be. Let's read the first 12 verses here. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. 
the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Let's pause there in our reading and look at those first 12 verses, because what you see, if you look at this, there's some, there's some heavy stuff, yes? Just deeply heavy stuff. What we see in those first 12 verses, the theme of Lamentations chapter four is this idea of reversal of fortune, that, that things used to be well and good and now they're not. And we see that over and over again, that's what the author is lamenting. He's saying it used to be that we experienced your hand of blessing and favor and now we seem to be experiencing nothing but your hand of, of heaviness and discipline and that's grieving this person and he's bringing it to God as a prayer. Now remember what we said, that lament is always a prayer, right? And in this sense, it's a poetic prayer, but it's a, it's a prayer offered to God. So this is not just complaint broadly. This is bringing this to the throne of God. And what the author is saying to God is, we used to be well, and now we're not. So we see that in verses one and two, when he talks about this idea of tarnished gold, when he says, how the gold has grown dim, how pure gold has changed. Now, gold as a metal doesn't actually tarnish. It doesn't actually fade. And so what the author is saying is he's using gold, not as a talking about actual gold that was in the city of Jerusalem. He's saying, we, your people, we're like gold, and we shouldn't tarnish because we're yours, and yet we have now found ourselves in a place where, as pure gold, we are now tarnished. We're not what we used to be, and it's not what you would expect, right? Anyone who knows anything about gold would say, gold doesn't do that, but in this case, it has. And that's what he's using gold as a metaphor for themselves, and he's saying we used to be like this pure, beautiful uh, gold, and now it's as if gold, which shouldn't do this, has been tarnished. It's no longer pure. He says in verse six or verse seven and eight, he says, her princes, talking about the people of Jerusalem and of Judah, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Do you see the reversal of fortunes there? What he's saying is, if I were going to summarize that, it would be, we used to be strong and beautiful. We used to be strong and healthy and full of vigor, and now you can't even recognize us. Our physical appearance has been so wrecked, so destroyed. Such devastation has come upon us. So the author is not just saying, right, the lament here is not just, man, we're in a, we're in a bad time. It's the, it's the sort of 
head spinning that comes from being in a place of we were experiencing God's favor and now we're experiencing God's discipline and that can make you dizzy. That can spin you around when this idea of the reversal of fortunes uh, comes into play. Now listen, here's my initial instincts. When I read Lamentations 4 and I think about this complaint, my initial instinct is to say, well, this kind of complaint can only come from a place of entitlement. It can only come from a place that says, I'm owed good things, God, and therefore now I don't have them, and I'm gonna complain to you about that. That's my initial instinct as I read Lamentations chapter four. But here's what we have to do. Let me give you kind of a Bible study nuance or tip that might help you, is when you're reading, in particular the Old Testament, but new as well, but often prevalent in the Old Testament, you're gonna have to ask the question, is what I'm reading descriptive or prescriptive? Now what I mean by that is, is what I'm reading describing a situation, but not necessarily recommending it as the ideal, descriptive, or is it prescriptive? Is it writing something to me that I'm supposed to say, this is my example to follow? This is actually something that's prescribing for me as a way to, to live, to move forward, right? So when we read things in the Old Testament, like this question comes up all the time. We talk about our theology of marriage, one man, one woman. And then you read in the Old Testament that Solomon had a lot of wives, right? And one of the questions that often people will ask of people who are believers is, what, what's going on there? Like that seems, uh, you know, hypocritical when Solomon had all these wives and the assumption is that God is prescribing that scenario that Solomon is engaging and he's not. He's simply describing in the scriptures what the reality was, not prescribing it as the way it should be. Does that make sense? You follow that? All right, so same thing here then. As I read this and I go, oh, this, this guy must be feeling entitled, like God owes him good things and now God's disciplining him and he's questioning it or he's complaining about it. Is this really a kind of complaint that I can bring to God when I experience any kind of reversal of fortune where I've sort of had uh, favor and blessing and now I'm experiencing discipline and hardship? Can I really bring that complaint to the Lord? And I think the answer is this. I think the answer is yes. And here's why I think my initial instinct to see this as a result of entitlement is wrong because more often than not, when you come to, in particular, prayers recorded in scripture and uh, psalms of praise, when you come to those, they are almost always prescriptive, not just descriptive. They're almost always a demonstration for us of how we can pray, how we can come to the Lord. And we've been treating lamentations that way, haven't we? We've been looking at it and saying, this is a demonstration for us of how to limit. That's why it's here. Is it here just to show us something that somebody said that wasn't good and right? Or is it here to show us, in fact, that this is a way that we might come to the Lord in a way that is good and right? And I think the second is true. All right, you, you tracking with me? Does that make sense? So then, if this isn't born out of entitlement, and it could be, I mean, I could go to the Lord, Lord, you owe me good things, and that would be expressing entitlement, right? And that wouldn't be good, that wouldn't be right. Yet, because this is here, I think it's a demonstration to us that there is a way to go to the Lord in complaint and say, Lord, it used to be this way, and now it's this. And I'm, I'm bringing that to you. And here's why, a couple things I think this does. Here's why I think this can be such a valuable lament, why it's worth bringing to the Lord in complaint. The first is that there's room to talk to the Lord about things that just simply are dizzying to us. Right? Have you ever done, so you can imagine that if you're here and all is well, and then, you know, quickly you're here and all is not well. That's a very, if you've experienced that in life, it, it throws you off center, doesn't it? 
it throws you off kilter. It's hard to get your balance and even know what to do with that when you've experienced that sort of reversal of fortune overnight, if you will. And I think there's some value here in just coming to the Lord in that complaint and saying, Lord, I am, I am dizzy uh, with how this is. And that there's something about moving forward that's helpful. Now, have you ever, it's a bit of a silly example, ever done like a dizzy bat thing? Right, anything where you're just like, or you've gone on a ride at, an, at a theme park or an amusement park where like, at some point, by the way, all of you who are young, you're gonna hit an age where it, you're not gonna wanna do any of those things anymore. Because you're gonna spin and then three hours later, you're still gonna be spinning. But what helps is sometimes, honestly, you have to like just fall over sometimes. Be like, everything needs to stop, everything needs to stop. Occasionally, a little vomit actually helps you feel a lot better. Right, just get it out. And then all of a sudden, you kind of regain your sanity. You're like, okay, I can move forward. This might be a little bit like that, right? The circumstances are so dizzying. They're so disruptive that just to, just to kind of bring that to the Lord, get it out of the system, if you will, helps steady us a little bit. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is why this is a complaint worth bringing to the Lord is that when it's not born out of entitlement, I said it could be, but it doesn't have to be. When it's not born out of the sense of, God, you owe me, then it can serve to remind us how rich God's favor can be. When I think about how rich God's favor has been in the past, it reminds me that even when I'm in difficult circumstances now, that I won't always be there, and that God's favor and blessing are good. And remember, in this case, where the people suffering is brought on by their own sin, which is not always the case, but here it is, that when our suffering might be brought on by our own sin, it will remind us why repentance is so important to complain that it was this way and now it's this way. And if I know that my sin had something to do with that, or perhaps is, is the reason for it, then it should move me towards repentance. It should make me go, well, goodness gracious, if I'm experiencing discipline because I won't listen, because I won't repent, then what should I do? Church, what should I do? I should repent. And I should say, Lord, let me repent that times of refreshing may come, that goodness may come that you might be able to bless, right? Just like a good parent, when my kids are disobedient, can I give them privileges? I can't bless their bad behavior, right? If I bless their bad behavior, it reinforces the bad behavior. If I say to myself, if I say to my kids, no, if you begin to walk in obedience, then I can bless you, right? Then I can give you the good things I want to give you. It's my heart, we say this all the time at my house to my kids, do we want to give you great things? My kids will say, yes, we know you do. Okay, let's start from there, right? Know that your parents, it's not my desire to discipline you. It's my desire to pour rich blessings out upon you. I want to take you for the Slurpee. I want to take you for the treat. I want to give you the good thing. I want to do these things. It is my deep desire to do them. When you refuse to do what you know I've asked you to do, I cannot give you those good things. I want you to do it. So the other thing of recognizing the way it used to be versus how it is now does help us move towards repentance at points. Remember, oh yes, God's hands of favor is really rich and good, I, I want that. And the last one is this. Look at verse 12 with me. Because here's one that I think, and again, we've gotta be nuanced here, okay? We gotta be subtle with our thinking. Because if you carry this to the wrong degree, then it becomes problematic. But look at verse 12. When he says, the kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Let me tell you what the author of Lamentations is saying there. 
he's offering the idea that all these foreign nations were watching what was happening to Israel, watching what was happening to Judah, and they had this expectation that, okay, these are supposed to be the people of God, and now their city's overthrown, and what the author's really doing is he's appealing to God, and he's saying, we don't want the nations to think less of you We're concerned about your glory. So here's the interesting thing. This is just like Exodus chapter 32 and Deuteronomy chapter nine, verses 25 through 29, where Moses says to to God, if you're not familiar with this, Moses says to God, uh, God has seen what the people have done in creating a golden calf. He's given the 10 commandments to Moses on the mountain. He comes down. The people have begun to worship an idol. And God says to Moses, I'm gonna destroy them and start over with you. I'm gonna destroy every single one of them. You're the faithful one, and I'll make a new nation out of you. Just like I started with Abraham, started with one. I'll start with you again, and I'll make a nation from you. And Moses doesn't say, well, you're God. It, you know, like, that's up to you, right? And he doesn't say, great idea. That, you know, like, that sounds pretty good to me. What does Moses say, if you remember, if you've read this before? He says, no, God, don't do that. Please, he pleads with God. Why? He says, all the nations that watched you bring us out of slavery in Egypt, will now say their God was not able to deliver them. Their God was not able to bring them into the promised land. What is Moses doing? He's saying, God, not because we're good, but because it will glorify you, don't destroy the people. He's, he's, he's attaching the goodness of the people or the good things coming to the people and God's glory. And he's saying those two things go hand in hand. And the same is true for us that was true for them. It glorifies God to bless his people. It glorifies God to bless his people and show favor to them. Now here's the thing. The prosperity gospel has kind of ruined this one for us because there's this idea in the prosperity gospel that God is only glorified by blessing his people with good things, with health, with prosperity, with wealth, all these things, right? That's not true. The scriptures make it really clear. God is also glorified when his people suffer. Somebody say amen to that, because that's a guard for us that we have to keep. God is glorified in that. He exalts himself through that, but let's not let the prosperity gospel steal the other side of that equation, which is that God is also glorified in blessing and showing favor to his people. And that's what the author of Lamentations is doing here. He's saying, God, your reputation is at stake among the nations, please turn. We used to have your favor, now we don't, and I'm saying that our glory, I know, is tied to you showing favor to us, therefore I'm asking you to show favor to us. If you assume that that's the only way God gets glory, that's prosperity gospel and it's false and unhelpful and untrue. But if you assume in a balanced way, God is glorified in this way, through my suffering, and God is also glorified through blessing me. Let's put it this way. At some point this week, did you ask God to do something good for somebody, maybe yourself or maybe somebody else, another brother or sister in Christ? Did you talk to God and ask him to heal somebody, make them well? Did you talk to God and ask him to show favor to this person, to give them wisdom or understanding? Did, did you do that this week? I hope you did. If you did, do you know what you were doing? You were saying, God, pour out blessing and favor upon that person. Why? Because they're worthy of it? Because he owes it to them? No because it would glorify you to do it. All your prayers are prayers for God's glory if they're rightly offered. God help them to endure. If you don't remove your hand of discipline, if you don't remove your hand of suffering, uh, causing suffering in their life, 
give them endurance and be with them, be so close to them that they would treasure you more, that they would go, oh, now I understand the sufferings of Christ because I've participated in them in a way that I had not before, and now I treasure him more. Give them that gift. But God also then bring them through that, heal them, make them well, restore them, give them joy. When you pray that, you're not just praying it because you think somebody is owed that. You're praying it because you believe God gets glory when he blesses his people, yes? That's why you pray it. So again, don't go to the era of the prosperity gospel, but don't lose that part of our prayers. Don't lose that part of our perspective that it does bless the name of God to show favor to his people. All right, so that's the first piece. That's why I think this is not just entitlement, but rather it's appropriate for us to go to God in complaint and say, God, it was this way, now it's this way, and I'm gonna bring that to you. I'm gonna talk to you about that. Second thing that we see here is how suffering can make the people of God cruel to one another. How suffering, this is, he's lamenting this, how suffering makes the people of God, not those outside the church, those inside it, how we become cruel towards one another when we're in the midst of suffering. This, I think, is a really important theme here. Let's listen to this. In, I read these verses. I'm gonna read them again for you just so we see it clearly. In verses three and four, he says, even jackals offer the breast and they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst, the children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Go down to verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now listen, that's, that's the, heavy, those the heaviest things. We saw those in Lamentations chapter two as well, if you remember. What he's doing is comparing the women of Judah and the women of Jerusalem to jackals and ostriches uh, who are known, have a reputation among the animal kingdom for being cruel to their young, that they don't care that much about what happens to their young. And he's saying, the suffering has gotten so bad, God, that those we would expect to be the most compassionate among us, brand new moms, those who have a reputation for being full of compassion and love, have actually turned to cruelty. That's how bad it's gotten. And he's bringing that complaint because he recognizes, listen to what he's saying. He's saying this is not the way the people of God should behave. He's not justifying it and saying it's so bad, therefore this is okay. He's saying this is sinful behavior, this isn't okay, and I'm gonna lament this to you, God, that things are so rough that what is kinda natural to, to humanity is that we have turned cruel in the face of your heavy hand of discipline. Have you noticed that when you're in a tough time, it's really easy to be mean? unkind, impatient? Have you noticed that? Yes? Have you ever thought to yourself, I mean, you, you have a little illness, a little ailment, a, a little thing. You know, I had a canker sore this weekend. I found myself being impatient with my kids because of a canker sore. That's all it takes to begin, you know. Now, magnify that and think about what it looks like to really, for the people of God in the midst of this kind of circumstance to be really cruel. So he's referring to that and lamenting it because it's not what we're supposed to be. Now let me offer this thought. If that's true for the people of God in the old covenant, how much more so under the new covenant? 
how much more so under the blood of Jesus where we know the great price that was paid for our redemption, the great suffering that was endured for us to have new life and to be reconciled to God, how much more so should the expectation on us be that we would lament when we find ourselves being cruel to one another? How much more so should we not turn to that knowing the sufferings that were brought about for our, on our behalf? Listen to what Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three says. Listen to this. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's the first part. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So what is that? That's what he's gonna explain. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I mean, get this, church family. When he says bearing with one another in love, do you get that that implies that there's some reason you would need to bear with somebody? That there's a cause for frustration? There's a cause for perhaps even anger? And he's saying, rather than give in to that cruelty that you want to express towards that person, that anger, that impatience, rather than do that, bear with them. Bear with them. Don't give up on them. Stay in relationship with them. Bear with one another. In humility, in gentleness, in patience. Look at what he says then next, verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now what he's doing there is he's referring back to chapter two of Ephesians where he has said to the to Jews and Gentiles, you have been made one. The dividing wall of hostility that was between you has been done away with and now because of Christ, because of his cross, because of how, it's not just a life-changing thing, the cross of Christ is a world-changing thing. It's because it's so powerful. What it's done is it's taken you two groups of people and it's made you one. And the thing that used to be hostility towards you, now you are at peace with one another because you're at peace with God. He has given you peace with him and therefore peace with one another. He's referring back to that when he says maintain, be eager, not just resigned, I guess I have to, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What he's saying is the peace that you now have with God results in peace with one another. As a result, the spirit dwells among you because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now the spirit has been sent, he is with you, and he maintains, or he calls you to maintain uh, unity that he has purchased for you. Now the other part I want you to see there is he doesn't say accomplish unity, he doesn't say figure out how to get unity, he doesn't say achieve it, what does he say? Maintain it. In other words, you've already been given it, now maintain it. Walk in it, live it out. So friends, under the new covenant, just as under the old, the people of God are called to be gentle and humble with one another, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I'd encourage you, those might be really good verses to memorize in these days. Ephesians four, one to three. Every time you're tempted, in the midst of, we've been through a difficult time. Have you noticed? Let's ask, this would be a great question to ask ourselves this week. Have I been cruel, unkind, impatient with other members of the body of Christ? When it came to the election, did I just, did I cast dispersions or did I wait with patience and gentleness to hear out my brother or sister, why they made the choice they made, different than the one that I made? Was I willing to listen? 
When it's come to COVID and masks and no masks and what my friend is comfortable with, what I'm comfortable with, we wanted to get together, but now we can't get together because they're, they're too conservative or they're too liberal about it in terms of like what they're willing to do or not willing to do. Do you find yourself being cruel? Or do you maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? I, just, I would challenge all of us, myself included, to ask that question. If he's lamenting it here, what we should take from that is that we should lament it too. And as we lament it, recognize that it's not meant to mark us in our relationship with one another, this kind of cruelty. Third thing that we see in this text that's worth lamenting is a lack of godly leadership. Find this in verse 13 through 16. I haven't read these to you yet, so let me read them now. A lack of godly leadership. Everything he said in verses one through 12, now look at what he says in verse 13. This, referring back to every, all the bad stuff in one through 12, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers, People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Okay, so here's what the author is saying. He's painting a picture. He's returning back to what he talked about in chapter two, verse 14, when he was talking about the failings of the leadership of the people. And he refers here to prophets, priests, and elders. In other words, those that should be leading Elders who should be making wise decisions and governing well and leading the people well. Prophets who were meant to speak on behalf of God but were not speaking on his behalf, speaking things that he didn't say. Priests who were meant to usher people in to worship and into the purification rituals under the old covenant to come and now be with God and come and and, uh, let me bring you in or usher you into his presence. In other words, those who were supposed to help the people walk and become clean have now themselves become what? unclean, and how have they become unclean? They are covered in the blood of their own people. They have harmed and hurt their own people. The author probably has in mind prophets like Jeremiah here. Jeremiah came under threat of death from these false prophets being talked about in Lamentations. He was put in jail, we're gonna kill you, we're gonna destroy you, because you're saying the opposite of what we're saying. Other prophets, he didn't get put to death, but others did. The idea is this. Is that, now, this is not just bad leadership. This is ungodly leadership. Remember in chapter two, what we saw is that ungodly leadership looks like not being willing to call out your own people on their sin. Do you remember that? That's part of godly leadership. That, that has to happen. Here's maybe the other side of that coin. So ungodly leadership, rather than lead with gentleness and love and protection of their people, they cause their people harm so that we see that godly leadership looks like leading your people with gentleness and grace and love, a lot of patience, and it also looks like being willing to call out your people when they're in sin. But both of those are done for their good, not for their harm, yes? So this is, again, one of those things where God is calling some of you, some of you are leading now, some of you he's calling and raising up to lead, and as you do so, 
to hold in perspective what he says about godly leadership versus ungodly leadership is gonna be really, really important. Let me offer a couple reasons why I think this is such a valuable kind of complaint to bring to the Lord. Why is this worth lamenting? Number one is that ungodly leadership brings destruction on the whole group. I don't know if you saw that there in verse 13. What did he say? Everything that was happening to the people in verses one through 12, why is it happening? This was because of the priests, because of the prophets. There is no such thing as leadership that does not affect the people being led. There is no such thing. If you lead, and this is a sobering reality, if you lead, if you lead in a godly fashion, it brings blessing on your people. If you lead in an ungodly fashion, it brings hardship on your people. Without exception, without exception. Drives you to your knees if you're gonna lead. Because that's the reality. Ungodly leadership harms everybody. We see it time and time and time again. So that's the first reason it's worth bringing to the Lord and lament. The second reason I think it's worth bringing is that if I lament ungodly leadership, I may be better at recognizing it in myself when I have to lead. So if you feel like you're seeing ungodly leadership, you very well may be. Take it to the Lord. Don't take it to others in complaint. Take it to the Lord. Remember, this is a conversation with who? With God. Take it to the Lord in complaint. And perhaps you'll grow in recognizing whether it's ungodly leadership and one, seeing, oh, I'm prone to that and be less prone to it than when you have to lead. The other thing that it does is it might help, the, the Lord is the one who will answer you as to whether or not your perception is right or not. Because there have been plenty of people who have called leadership ungodly when it wasn't. You wanna be careful about that. But there have also been plenty of people who have been under ungodly leadership and not been able to identify it as such. And so bringing it to the Lord and saying, God, I see, I see the people being hurt. I see the people being harmed. That seems to be a mark of ungodly leadership. I'm gonna complain to you about that. I'm gonna bring that to you. Would you show me if that's, my perception is right? So those are a couple of reasons I think it's worth lamenting. And it's just clearly here for us to follow that example. So I think it's imperative that we understand it. Now listen, those are the three things that I just wanted to highlight from Lamentation chapter four. The, the three biggest things that happened in this chapter are those three things. Now, at the very end, verse 22, something really great happens, something really remarkable happens. The author says, essentially, I'm gonna summarize it for you. The author essentially says, this hand of discipline that's on us now won't, is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. And not only that, but all those who have been kind of laughing at us, all those who have been belittling us, maybe even participating in harming us. He singles out Edom, who's a historical enemy of the nation of Israel. He singles them out. He says, your discipline, your judgment will come upon them. And this is important for the church to remember that the scriptures are pretty clear. We're gonna suffer and be persecuted. Right? If you read the book of Revelation, you're gonna hear this a lot. You will need to endure you will need to persevere to the end, right? Those who persevere to the end will be saved. So you're gonna hear that word again and again. And as Christians, when we encounter persecution and difficulty, one of the things to know is that God, that is, God is not uh, absent when that's happening. And when it happens, it will come to an end. It will come to an end and hold out hope. And the cross of Jesus is the guarantee that it will come to an end. Remember what we said last week. The cross of Jesus is the guarantee that God will not always aim his love at us in the form of discipline, but that the last word will be that God will aim his love at us 
for the sake of righteousness, peace, and joy for eternity. That's the guarantee of the cross where the wrath of God was absorbed for you and for I so that discipline may last for a season but it will come to an end and we can know it. And not only that, but all in the world who have rejected God, who have worked against him and against his people will face his judgment should they not repent and turn to him. In other words, injustices will not be left undone. Injustices will not be left unpunished or undealt with. Even if it seems now that people get away with murder, no injustice will be left unpaid for either by the cross or by those who have performed it. There's only two options. It will come. And we remember that and we take hope in it because the cross is the guarantee that that hand of discipline will be lifted from us and will not last forever. We come to the Lord's table now, friends. If grab the elements that were provided for you. And as we come to the Lord's table, just two reminders that are always pertinent for us. So number one is that when we come to the table, we are instructed by God's word not to take these elements lightly. And what that means is that even as we hold the elements and partake of them, we ask God to examine our hearts. And we say, God, would you show me where there's sin? Would you show me where there's sin? I would not presume to partake of these elements which represent your blood and your body sacrificed for me, shed for me. I would not presume to partake of them as if it, the salvation purchased for me by them was light and easy. And in taking these elements, I commit myself, I commit myself to let you examine my heart and where you show me there's sin, where you show me there's something that displeases you, I commit to put it to death by your strength and power. I will walk with you, not in sin. That's the first thing. So we're gonna let the Lord examine our hearts here for just a few moments. The second thing is this, is if you're not a follower of Jesus, first, you're in the right place. We're so glad you're here. Examining faith, examining the claims of Jesus, no better place for you to be. But as we take these elements, I'm gonna invite you to let them pass by you, to not partake. And the reason is that in partaking them, we're proclaiming something. We are saying with our actions that we believe in our heart and our mind that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except by him. And if that's not what you believe, we wouldn't want you to proclaim that with your actions, what you haven't believed in your mind or with your heart. We pray that God would redeem you and win you to himself. We pray that you would see the glorious Jesus that we have seen and been saved by. And that you would come and receive the offer that he has made to you of eternal life if you would just come, repent of your sins and receive his salvation, he will do it. Our prayer is that you would receive that. But until you do, we'll invite you to let these elements pass. So church family, let's go before the Lord now in prayer. Just a few moments of asking God to examine our hearts and then we'll come and take the elements together. Let's pray now.